you turn to Job chapter 42, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 in a sermon entitled, Hope Amidst Suffering. While you're turning there, last night, um, my wife came into the living room and said we got to turn on the Georgia game because Missouri was beating them. So I thought this morning's sermon might be uh, directed at the Georgia fans had they lost because they'd have been suffering immensely. Um, but however, they managed to pull it out. But I've been more than qualified to, to help talk Georgia fans off the ledge because as a Florida fan, we've been suffering since 2008. So, <laughs> but anyway, that's enough jokes. Um, let's get down to the business of God's Word. In Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, we read, Did Job answer the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and repent in dust and ashes. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to come and to worship you through the study of your word. And Father, as we do that now, I pray and ask that you would first use me as your tool to preach your word and to do so without error. Guard my lips from error. Help get me out of the way. And Father, we pray and ask that as your word goes forth, that you would open all of our hearts and our minds to receive your truth and to receive it with gladness. Father, conform us more to the image of Christ, having heard your word this morning. And it's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen. All righty. So, we have all heard the story of Job, or at least the majority of us in here have. And from the book of Job, we see the story of a man who suffers through extreme hardship and calamity. In one fell swoop, Job loses all of his children, livestock, and servants, save four messengers. And if that wasn't enough, he then underwent extreme physical hardship. He was inflicted with painful boils from head to toe that oozed continuously, severe itching, loss of appetite, insomnia, worm and dust infested flesh, severe halitosis, the loss of his teeth, incredible and relentless pain. His skin turned black and he had a raging fever and he lost considerable weight during his ordeal. And what's the one thing we attribute to Job most often when we think about how he responded to all of this hardship? That he met it with great patience and faith. We think about what he said in chapter 1, verses 20, and 20 through 22, when it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin or blame God. Or you may remember in chapter 13, verse 15, where Job says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. These are powerful examples of a man responding in great trust and obedience, placing his hope in God during such difficulty. However, sometimes I think we put him on a pedestal and forget that Job was a man like any other man. Job was born with the same sinful nature that you and I are born with. He was also born in Adam the same way you and I and every other person who ever has lived has been according to Romans chapter 5. We are born in Adam. 
So to be fair and accurate, we have to understand that Job didn't respond in great faith perfectly. He also questioned God's purposes and complained about his situation to God. Even at times making accusations against God, Job struggled in his suffering. There is a tension to be seen between times of great responses of faith as well as times of doubt and fear in the book of Job. That's why we see, that's why in Job 42, 1 through 6, we see Job coming to a right understanding of himself and repenting in dust and ashes. For 37 chapters, God remained silent during Job's affliction. Yet in chapter 38 through 41, God responds to Job by asking him a series of burning questions. He asked him around 80 or so. And the answers to all those questions boiled down to this. God was telling Job that he was God and Job was not. And his ways were not God's ways and that Job had no right to question God's purposes. His only response should be trust and obedience always. See, Job had a kind of an Isaiah chapter 6 moment. You remember when Isaiah got a glimpse into the throne room of God and his response was, Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Well, Job also had a one-on-one encounter with God as he rebuked him. And Job was crushed to the dust and could only respond in one way, and that was repentance. Today, what I want to try to do is look at the life of Job as a whole. To look over the book from a bird's eye view and offer up some hope and encouragement that we can look to as we face sufferings and trials. And let's face it, we will all face suffering and trials to some extent or another in our lifetime, and some of us more so than others. As a matter of fact, I'm sure there are those in here today who are in the thick of it as we speak. And my hope today is that by the time I'm done, you can look to Job and find encouragement. As for me, my preparation for today brought me to the realization that God has been gracious to me and that I haven't had to suffer any great trials as of yet. Have there been small but difficult things happen? Sure, but nothing like what some of you have faced or are facing, although I did come close once. And I'll confess to you here, I wasn't ready. Back when the situation with Tenley's neutropenia began, but we didn't know it was neutropenia yet, I remember Crystal calling me and telling me that they were headed to Wolfson's to have blood work done because some numbers in Tenley's original tests were alarming. Now, a little side note here. Fun fact. I wrote this three years ago. (laughs) This sermon was written three years ago. I was supposed to deliver it then, but God and his sovereignty postponed it till now. So because of that, some of there's new faces in this audience that don't necessarily know who I am and have no idea who Tenley is and have no idea what neutropenia is. So let me take a brief moment and just say, my name is Richard, my wife Crystal is over there, my better half, and trust me, she's my better half. And, uh, <laughs> and I have three daughters and one son, Brock, Taylor, Tinley, and Layla. Um, when Tinley, Tinley's eight now, but when she was three, she was uh, diagnosed with benign neutropenia. Basically, it's an um, a, uh, immune disorder where her body doesn't quite fight off infection well. And it was kind of scary at the time because anytime she got sick, we had to go to the hospital, put her on antibiotics, and she had to be fever-free for 24 hours, just a whole process. But for those of you, just to give, set some context for, those, context for those of you who don't know who I am, that's what I'm talking about there is when we first found out about uh, Tinley's neutropenia, but before it was actually neutropenia, Crystal's calling me to tell me that she'd went in, Tinley was sick, and she had some blood work done, and that blood work was alarming. And as I'm sitting in the hospital, slouched in the chair in the hospital room with the doctor talking to us, He starts throwing around words like leukemia. And I hate to admit this, 
But extreme selfishness, I'm begging God to not let it be that. To be anything but that because I couldn't handle it. My little girl would be the one with the disease, but I'm worried about me. I'm ashamed to admit that to you, but nevertheless, it is the truth. And God could have very well allowed Tinley to have leukemia in that moment as a tool to burn that selfish chaff out of me. But instead, he was gracious, and it turned out to be something much less dangerous. And since then, Tinley has been healthy and happy. For a child with immune disorder, she gets sick less than the rest of us. It's quite amazing how God has protected her in that situation. But as thankful as I am for that outcome, I would be naive to think that I'm going to go through this life having never suffered any extreme difficulty. The day will come when I will, and I hope I can remember to look to Job as well for encouragement. Again, a sidebar here. As I said before, it's been three years since I wrote those words. Interestingly enough, the day has come where I would begin to endure a significant trial and difficulty in the last few months. My wife and I have, tried, have had to endure significant fear, anxiety, and countless days of overwhelming sense of hopelessness. And those of you who are close to me know exactly what I'm speaking about. And those that and I understand fully, and many here are wondering where, and you know, I can talk to you about it in private, but talking about it here isn't the proper place. But what I want you to see in all this is this. The sentence I just uttered moments ago where I said the day will come when I will, and I hope I can find and remember to look to Job as well for encouragement, has indeed come to pass. Now, did I remember to look to Job for encouragement? No. <laughs> I did not. However, as I was coming into the height of this situation, Cody asked me if I would be willing to pull this sermon out of the archive, and it was then I received the encouragement I needed from a sermon written three years prior. If that doesn't speak to the sovereignty of God and the need for the local church when it comes to walking through trial and difficulty, I don't know what does. This sermon has helped me find hope in difficulty, and I'm hoping and praying it does the same for you as well. And I know in your bulletin you have three points that we're going to cover. And I'm going off the script for a moment, Justin, so don't get mad. (laughs) But there's three points we're going to cover. But I want to offer up a fourth point here concerning what God can do for you in providing hope amidst suffering. I want you to look around you. He has provided for us the local church, the body of Christ and the body of believers that can bear up your burdens with you. There are several in here that I have leaned on, some who are probably tired of listening to me, but that's fine. And I won't mention their names, but they have been an encouragement to me and they have helped me during this time of difficulty. This isn't lone wolf Christianity. You don't have to bear your burdens alone. God has given you a body of believers that you can lean on and lean into. And in demonstrating their love toward you, they will help hold you up, even rebuke you at times. But understand, they're doing it out of love for you and helping you become more conformed to the image of Christ. You have hope amidst suffering because of the body of believers around you. And I'm thankful for the church. But that was point number one. But now we're going to move to point number one that's actually in your bulletin. That other part was free. Um, Let's begin by looking at the first way we can hope amidst suffering. And that is, number one, God is sovereign in our suffering. Verse one reads, I know, verse one of chapter 42 reads, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job comes full circle here in his confession to God by reaffirming what he already knew in the beginning. If you recall in chapter 1, Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. 
In that response, Job is affirming that, he, affirming that he was fully aware of God's sovereign control over the circumstances of his life. By making the statement that God not only gives but takes away, Job is showing us that he understands that the difficulties he faces in this life have been allowed to take place by God and are under his control. And our response should be worship, trust, and obedience regardless of those circumstances. Which is at this point is exactly what Job does. He worships the Lord. We also see Job affirm this in chapter 2 when Satan afflicts him with boils. In verse 9 of chapter 2, the Bible says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as a foolish woman speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from the Lord and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And notice the language Job uses here. Accept good and accept adversity. In other words, take the good God gives us with the bad God gives us. And we have info that Job doesn't. Satan inflicted Job. But Job attributes it to God. That's a difficult providence to wrap our head around, but one we need to grasp. The trials and afflictions we face in this life are under the umbrella of God's sovereign control. And speaking of info that Job doesn't, having info that Job doesn't, we know that the afflictions that Job suffered were entirely God's idea. They were God's suggestion. Let's look at Job 1, 6 through 12 that reads this. That there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. Now Job was unaware of this conversation. Yet, once Satan did what God had given him permission to do, and notice that now, Satan could do nothing without God's permission. But once Satan destroyed Job's family and wealth, Job still worshipped God and blessed the name of the Lord. So in chapter 2, the scenario plays out again with Satan coming before the Lord and God suggesting Job once again to Satan by saying in verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. As you can clearly see, the afflictions and suffering Job faced were orchestrated by God's sovereign hand. It's understandable to wrestle with that thought, especially since I'm bringing all this info to you with the idea that you're supposed to find hope in all this. But where is the hope to be found in knowing that the suffering we face is allowed by God? Well, let's consider why, Job, why God suggested Job in the first place. Job was a blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. God suggested Job because he knew Job would persevere through the sufferings. 
That was the whole point to God doing this, to bring himself glory and to show Satan to be the pawn that he is. Satan, who somehow, somehow always seems to forget about the omniscience and omnipotence of God, was challenging God on the premise that if you inflict enough pain and suffering on one of God's chosen, they will defect and lose their faith in him. Yet, though Satan was somewhat right because Job did question God and complain, ultimately Job persevered through the difficulties and proved Satan dead wrong because those with true saving faith will persevere to the end. And they do so because God won't let them do otherwise. We have an entire doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. That's the hope you can draw on knowing God is sovereign over your suffering. If you belong to him, he will give you the strength to overcome the adversity and bring glory to him in the process. The verse most taken out of context in the history of the church, in my opinion, actually applies here, which is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is a verse about suffering. This ain't about hitting home runs. It's a verse about suffering. That old adage that says, if God brings you to it, he will bring you through it. You will persevere to the end, to God's glory and your good. And even if the end culminates in your death, if the trial culminates in your death, so be it. As Charles Spurgeon once said, the best moment of a Christian's life is his last one because it is the one nearest to heaven. And Spurgeon also said this, it is not a loss to die. It is a lasting perpetual gain. In the sufferings of Job, we see God's sovereignty, and it should give us great hope because if he's allowed us to go through it by his grace and mercy, you will persevere to the end. And even that end means that you die. You'll close your eyes in this life and open them in eternity with Christ the Savior. It does not matter. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. This pales in comparison to the promise you have in Christ Jesus. So now let's move on to our second point to consider from Job concerning hope amidst suffering, and that is to remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. Job 42, verses 3 and 4 read this. Who is that that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Now, in these verses, Job is repeating back to God the very questions God asked of Job when God responded to Job's accusations. In chapter 38 and verse 2, God says to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. (laughs) Could you imagine this? (laughs) Basically, if I was to paraphrase this in our Callahanian vernacular, Job had been questioning God and demanded to know why he was suffering the way he was. And at times, even making accusations. And when God finally responds, it's by way of rebuke. And God basically says, hey boy, you want to question me? Okay. Well, put on your big boy pants because i got a few questions for you, son. That's pretty much what he's saying. Then God goes on to ask him a series of questions like, where were you when I created the earth? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? I like that phrase, commanded the morning. We watch a sunset and it's God literally commanding the morning. Have you ever commanded the morning, Job? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Will you play with him as a bird or bide him for your maidens? 
Now, of course, the answer to all of this is no. Job had done none of this or had the power to do so. God was doing one thing here with all these questions, demonstrating to Job that God is God and Job is not. He wanted Job to understand that he was not as great, eternal, powerful, wise, and perfect as God is. And since that he isn't, it would be in his best interest to just be quiet and to trust in him during this time. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. What does this have to do with Deuteronomy 29.29? Well, Deuteronomy 29.29 states, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. The secret things belong to the Lord. Job's major struggle was trying to understand why, and yet at no point does God ever reveal to Job the reason why he was suffering the way he was. God's only concern was that Job trust in his sovereign hand. That's my reason for saying we should remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. Sometimes we aren't ever going to find out why we go through the trials and afflictions that we go through. And God is under no obligation to tell us either. He never told Job, and he may never reveal it to us. And our response should always be to remember that God is sovereign over it, over it, And we need to lean on and trust him to give us the strength and his strength to walk through it. Now, will we do that perfectly? Probably not. Job didn't either. But that should also give us some encouragement. That's one of the things that I love about sacred scripture is God doesn't hide the flaws of the saints who came before us. Job struggled in his suffering. We can see an ebb and flow attention of going through times of having great faith Though he slay me, I will hope in him. In times of doubt and worry, asking God like Job did in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, where he said, I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. To be clear, lodging this type of complaint was indeed sinful. That's the reason Job was rebuked and ultimately repented in chapter 42. What I want you to see here is that if you find yourself falling into the temptation to demand answers from God amidst your suffering, you aren't alone. The saints of old did as well. That's why it's good to look to Job and the struggle he went through. Yes, he cracked under the pressure. He fell into sin, but he repented and he was restored. If you find yourself in that situation, repent and remember that God is in control and you can trust him in your affliction no matter what the outcome. That's why it's good to remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. We may not always know why, because God may intentionally withhold that information from us. So leave the secret elements to God, and not so much ask why, but what. What is God trying to teach me in this? Because what does the Bible teach us about the purpose of trials and affliction? They are designed to mold us more into the image of Christ, and to increase our faith and perseverance until the end. God uses suffering to refine us, to mold us, and to burn away those parts of us that do not reflect the image of Christ. And let's learn one thing from Job here. No level of spiritual maturity is immune from being subject to the fires of trials. Job was a blameless and upright man who feared God, remember? Yet, there was something within him that God felt needed to be refined. He needed further molding. 
Sometimes God is trying to strengthen something in you through trials and afflictions. Sometimes he's trying to remove something from you. But either way, God is at work molding you more into the image of Christ. Our job is to determine how and then take the necessary steps to apply what it is he's teaching us. Now, of course, it would be unfair for me to suggest that we never know why we suffer through trials and afflictions. There's definitely times when we would certainly know why we're suffering. One of the way would be if there was unconfessed sin in our life. Now let's be clear, the reason Job was suffering was not because he had unrepentant sin in his life. His friends thought that that was the problem, and they were actually rebuked for accusing Job of being in sin in chapter 42. So Job wasn't suffering because of sin. But that does not mean it's not the why in many cases. Sin has consequences, does it not? We see that in the Old and the New Testament. Adam and Eve sinned, and and the consequences of that decision has affected us all. Um, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and were killed on the spot. Achan kept spoil and he and his family were killed. Uzzah, with good intentions, put his hand on the ark and he was instantly killed. Sin has consequences and the Bible is clear that God, the loving Father he is, chastises those he loves. And sometimes the chastisement comes in the form of allowing you to suffer the consequences of your sin so that you can come to grips with that sin confess and repent from it and begin to put it into death in the hopes of having victory over it and being conformed more into the image of Christ. You may fall into sin. God may allow you to suffer for it, but in the end it's for your good and for his glory. James makes this point very clear in James 11 where James says, We count those blessed who have endured. You have heard the endurance of Job and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. And think about the context James is saying this. We're to have joy when we face trials because it increases our faith and makes us more like our Savior. James is using Job as an example of hope knowing that God has a purpose for our suffering just as he did for Job's sufferings. And the Lord was not only compassionate and merciful in restoring Job's health, wealth, and family, but God was also compassionate and merciful in having Job go through the trial in the first place because it brought him closer to God. In Job 42.5, Job says, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. The entire ordeal brought Job closer to God. He always had a great knowledge of God, but it wasn't until that moment that he truly saw God for who God was, and Job recognized who he was in light of God's power and majesty. All the suffering and pain resulted in greater faith and love for God in the end. So the takeaway is this, whether you know why you may be suffering an affliction or whether it's unknown to you, remember God is doing something in your life and he has a divine purpose behind it. And again, it is for your good and it is for his glory. It is a great mercy and a divine tenderness to be refined in the crucible of trial and affliction because in the end we reflect more of the Savior. And speaking of the Savior... That brings me to my final point, and it may or may not be brief. I don't know. Number three, we can suffer with hope because of the one to whom we belong. In Job 19, verses 23 through 27, we read this. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, 
whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another, my heart faints within me. Within these verses, we see again the ebb and flow of Job's struggle. Chapter 19 may be the point of Job's greatest despair, but we also see him break forth with the highest praise. He says that his heart faints within him. And why? Because he knows his Redeemer lives and that one day he will see him with his eyes as he takes his stand on the earth. Like all Old Testament saints before him, he was looking forward to the time when God would do away with sin and suffering. He was holding fast to the promise of a kinsman redeemer. Like all the Old Testament saints, Job was looking forward to the seed that was promised, and that seed is Christ. Now, this morning I've made a couple of comments that we have information that Job didn't have. Well, Job didn't have a clear picture of Jesus. Job's understanding of Jesus wasn't crystal clear. He knew there was a kinsman redeemer, but... He had no idea it was going to be Jesus Christ. But we have the whole canon of Scripture, and Jesus Christ has been revealed to us fully. We have a Savior who has suffered and been tempted in every way that you and I ever will be. He's not a Savior who's distant and removed from us. He's a Savior who knows firsthand what it means to suffer in the flesh. Hebrews 4.14 tells us this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Praise God for a Savior who has condescended to our level. Who has come down into the bog to rescue us. Other religions, their gods aren't personal. They're distant. They're cold. They're harsh taskmasters. And most importantly, they're false. But Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is personal. He's warm. And he's loved us enough to bear our sin. And to be intimately acquainted with us in all respects. Even in our sufferings. And let me just mention this, oftentimes I think we think of suffering in the physical sense concerning sickness or loss, and that's the only way we think of it, but beloved, Jesus was called the suffering servant not only because of the suffering of the cross, but also because of the suffering of his obedient life. He suffered with temptation. He suffered with obedience. He suffered to abstain from pride. He was God in the flesh, and yet he suffered without sin. In all the ways that we can suffer affliction and trial, he can sympathize with us. And that should give us great hope. His obedient life and sacrificial death has granted to us eternal life. He is our great high priest. And what does the text of Hebrews tell us? That we can go to our high priest and draw near to him with confidence in our time of need, knowing that he understands and can help us walk through our trials and afflictions, always resting in the fact that there are greater things to come. We rest in his promises that one day this mortal body of flesh will be no more. The sufferings of this world cannot harm me. And there's a place prepared for me in my father's house where suffering and affliction and sin are no more because my God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, has granted victory over them by his sacrifice for me. And his sacrifice has secured one of the greatest promises of all, that one day we will be as he is. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 tells us, Beloved, 
Now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has, has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. One day Christ will return. And when he does, we will be completely transformed. We will be fully conformed to the image of Christ. We will be as he is. and We will forever be with him in glory. The sufferings of this world pale in comparison to hope found in that promise. So in your affliction, look to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. Trust in Christ. He is our greatest hope and comfort. We suffer with hope because our hope is in Christ. And for those of us in here who are believers, that is the truth for us. We can look to Christ and have hope amidst affliction. But I need to be real for a moment. In a crowd this size, there is most definitely at least one who isn't a believer. Who isn't truly trusted in Christ Jesus for salvation. And for you, the reality is that if you are or are currently suffering through trials and afflictions, you are doing so without hope. And it's a terrible reality to live in because I've seen it. I know people who have denied the gospel, who reject even the existence of God, are going through trials, difficulties in their own life, watching their kids suffer ailments, and they search for answers, they look for relief, but the answers never come, the pit only widens and deepens, and it's because they, only, they have no hope. They only have what the world can offer by way of hope, and it's weak, and it's insufficient. So my question is, is that you? Are you without Christ? Without hope, then I'm begging you, turn to Christ. But not just because you want relief from suffering, because I can promise you this, just because you're a Christian, because you belong to Christ doesn't mean you're going to have relief from suffering. Suffering will come. But I want you to run to Christ because of the hope to be found in redemption. If you are here without Christ, or if you've made a profession of Christ to cry, a profession, public profession of Christ, but the evidence of your life shows that you're not a part of the vine, there's no fruit of repentance, I want you to hear me now. The Bible is very, very clear. You are storing up wrath for yourself. You stand under the judgment of God. You may not think so because you're here this morning and everything seems fine. But as Vodibachum once said, It's God's mercy that you woke up this morning because his judgment should have killed you last night. It is by his grace that you're here and it's by his grace and his kindness that you have an opportunity to repent and place your faith in Christ. You stand condemned under the wrath of God for your sin as a lawbreaker. See, every time you see the cross, the symbol of the cross, I want you to understand that you see the love and the wrath of God displayed in one place. You see the love of God the Father in sending Christ, his Son, to die in your stead. You see the love of Jesus Christ in that he came and he obediently followed the law in perfection to be that perfect, sinless, spotless lamb on your behalf and that he died the death that you owe. And see, you see the wrath of God there because the wrath of God the Father was poured out on the Son for you. Christ suffered a criminal's death because we're the criminal he suffered for. We have broken God's law. 
You have broken God's law. I have broken God's law. Therefore, we deserve death and hell. And it pleased the Father to crush the Son. And why? Because in crushing the Son, redemption is given to you. And all you have to do, all that is required of you is to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And you will be saved from the wrath of God to come. And you know what the glorious truth in that is? If you place your faith in Christ, you repent of your sins and submit to the Lordship of Christ, the Bible says there is there now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His condemnation has been lifted from you. The wrath of God no longer resides on you because it's been paid for by Christ Jesus on your behalf. I am begging you, if you don't know him, run to Christ. It is the greatest hope you need right now. It is your greatest need is to come to Jesus Christ. But for those of us in here that know Christ, that we have Christ, we have tasted and seen that Christ is good. We have a hope beyond all hope. As that song says, rock of ages, cleft for me, we get to hide in the cleft of the rock. Jesus Christ for us in our suffering is our strength and our portion forever. This may be one of the quickest sermons you ever heard, and that's okay. <laughs> but let's stand and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you now for this time. And Father, as your word has been preached, I pray not because I'm the one that preached it, but because your spirit is working, that the, those here today will find hope in Christ. Let us remember that you are sovereign over any suffering and trial we may go through, and we can rest and find comfort in you. But also, Father, for those here who do not know you, I pray that as your gospel was presented, that you will prick their hearts and you will open them up to come and receive Jesus Christ as Savior. For that is their greatest hope and need. We thank you, Father, for this time. And we pray that it is acceptable worship in your sight. And it's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.